few years ago, one of the colleges in Toronto issued a, a memo to its teaching staff informing them that all of them must provide official university transcripts to prove the qualifications that they claim to have. The pressure to succeed in a highly competitive society induces many to pad their resumes, to burnish their credentials, to make uh, extravagant claims about the achievements and experiences. We think, for instance, of the chief executive of Yahoo, who some time ago had to resign when it was disclosed that he did not have uh, the Bachelor of Science degree which he had claimed to possess. As a result, more and more employers and institutions are no longer satisfied with mere claims to possess degrees and mere there's not a, a lot of confidence in mere statements regarding one's experience and qualifications. And so they are requiring proof. Well, it is not only our generation that requires proof of qualification. The writer of Hebrews, as he advances this teaching regarding the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, and particularly in verses 14 to 16, where he tells them that we have a great high priest who has gone into the heavens and thus invites us to draw near to the throne of grace. He moves swiftly in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, to present the qualifications of Jesus as the great high priest. He knows that merely declaring that Christ is a great high priest would not satisfy some because they will be saying, well, show us the proof. And really, what you find in chapter 5 is the writer now showing or giving proof that Jesus is the great high priest. And so this section must be seen as that which deals with the qualifications of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. The paragraph itself divides into two portions. First, you have verses 1 to 4 which looks at the qualifications for earthly high priests in general. So there are, in the writer's mind, a set of qualifications that all Aaronic high priests must possess. So verses 1 to 4 deals with the qualifications of high priests in general. And then in verses 5 to 10, he deals specifically with the qualifications of Jesus as high priest. Now, when you go back to verses 1 to 4 to look at the general qualifications for the Aaronic high priests, you will find that the writer emphasizes two main qualifications that all high priests must possess. He does that in verses 1 to 3. He begins, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The first major qualification of all high priests is that a high priest 
must have a sympathetic identification with the people that he represents. A high priest must, in some sense, demonstrate a solidarity with the people whom he's called upon to represent before God. And that is why he begins, for every high priest taken from among men, there is a solidarity between the priest and the people, that both of them are humans. We cannot have an angel as a high priest because he is not taken from among men. He cannot properly represent us because he is of a different nature. So the high priest is taken from among men. And you see his solidarity, his sympathetic identification with his people, because not only is he taken from among men, in verse 1 he's appointed for men. His role is to be a representative of his people. And he is a representative in things pertaining to God, vis-a-vis that the things are the gifts and sacrifices that he offers for sins. And so the high priest, first of all, is one who is in solidarity with his people, in sympathetic identification. He, like his people, is human. He's taken from among men, and he represents his people, and particularly in offering sacrifices and gifts to God for sins. The author also continues as he talks about the high priest's identification with his people. He says that this high priest is one who is sympathetic, compassionate. And that what you, what you find in verse 2. He can have compassion, he says. He can be the one who deals gently and tenderly with the ignorant and those who go astray, that is, those who go into sin. Why? Why can the high priest be sympathetic with those who are ignorant of God's will and those who go astray in sin? It is because he himself is subject to weakness. The reason he can be a qualified high priest is that he's able to sympathize with his people. And you know that he's able to sympathize in verse 3 because not only does he offer sacrifices for his own sins, but he offers sacrifices for his family and for his people. And so you see, the high priest was able to represent his people. He was qualified because he was like his people. He was a fellow sinner, one who shared the weaknesses of his people, and therefore he was qualified. So the first qualification of high priests in general is that they had a solidarity, a sympathetic identification with the people that they represent. Verse 4 shows the second qualification of the Aaronic high priest, human high priests. Not only did a high priest have to be like his people to be able to understand them and represent them correctly, he had to be appointed by God. And that is what you find in verse 4. And no man takes this honor himself. But he who is called by God just as Aaron was. You see, the high priest in the Old Testament didn't think that this was a lovely office 
This was a way of advancing their career to be a high priest. They didn't go to school thinking, you know, I, I have a goal one day to go through the entire system of the priesthood. Eventually, then I reach the top and become the chief priest. No. For you to become a high priest, you want to be appointed by God. And that's what God did. God appointed Aaron and his descendants to be high priests. And so there were two qualifications. One, there had to be solidarity with the people, and the other, the high priest had to be appointed directly by God. Verses 5 to 10, the writer now will begin to discuss Jesus' qualification. And what he does is that he inverts the order of the qualifications for high priesthood. First, he deals with the divine appointment of Christ to be high priest, and then his identification with his people. And that's the order in which we're going to look at Christ's qualification then as high priest. First, Jesus is the qualified high priest by virtue of his divine appointment. That is found in verses 5 to 6. So you see there's this contrast, this comparison, this contrast between Christ and earthly high priest. In verse 5, you see the, the comparison. He says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, that is God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews has just said, Christ is the great high priest. And he says the reason that Christ is the great high priest is because first of all, he's qualified by virtue of God's appointment, by divine appointment. What he does is he quotes two psalms to prove that Christ was appointed by God. The first psalm he quotes is Psalm 2 verse 7. A psalm that we met earlier when we were reading in chapter 1 of Hebrews and verse 5 where the writer is contrasting Jesus to angelic beings and he says Jesus is greater or Jesus is better than angels and the reason he's better than angels is because God has declared him to be son. And he quotes there in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, this passage in Psalm 2 verse 7, Thou art my son, and today I have begotten you. In fact, when you read the Apostle Paul, who also quotes this psalm in Acts 13 verse 33, he says, God has fulfilled this for us, dear children, in that he has raised up Jesus as it also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And what he's saying is that this statement that God has made regarding Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you, has been made upon the resurrection of Jesus. He's not suggesting that Christ was not the son before his resurrection and exaltation, but it is precisely when he rose from the dead and was exalted in heaven that God vindicated him by saying, you are my son. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 verse 7. He says Jesus is qualified as a high priest, as a great high priest, and qualified because he has been anointed. He has been declared son of God. Now, now of course, when you 
look at the language of Psalm 2-7. Thou art my son, today I have, in fact, begotten you. There doesn't seem to be in that quotation anything about priesthood. So why does the writer bother to go back to Psalm 2 and verse 7 to talk about the sonship of Jesus Christ if he's talking about the priesthood of Christ? What he wants to do is not only to tell us that Jesus Christ is qualified to be our high priest, but he wants us to know that Jesus Christ is not an ordinary high priest because he is son. And that is, sonship in Scripture refers to his kingship. That Jesus Christ is a particular high priest. He is a king priest. He is a son. So not only is he qualified as high priest, but he's qualified as the king priest. The one who is king and the one who is priest. And that is why he goes back to Psalm 2-7 to point out that this priest is also king because he's the son of God. Secondly, he quotes Psalm 110 as a second text that proves that Jesus Christ is, Christ is qualified as our high priest because of his divine appointment. In Psalm 110, the Lord speaks to this king, a king to come. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He tells them in Psalm, he tells them in Psalm 110 verse 1. And then, in verse 6, he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, how then do we know that Christ is a high priest? After all, the writer of Hebrews will discuss the priesthood of Christ in chapter 7. And there he tells us that Christ, because he comes from the tribe of Judah, and priesthood only came from the line of the Levites. The reason that Jesus Christ is a real, a real priest is not because he belongs to the line of Levi. We know he belongs to the line of Judah. The reason he is a genuine, legitimate priest, it is because he belongs to a different line of priest one that was identified in Psalm 110 that declared then, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus Christ is qualified because he's been appointed. But his appointment as priest demarcates him, sets him apart from the Aaronic priest because, first of all, he is a son and king, so he's a king priest, and he is also a priest who comes from a different line, the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek himself is a very strange figure, an enigmatic figure in the Old Testament literature. We first meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 17 to 24, in fact, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It's a compound word. It means king of righteousness. He's also identified in the biblical literature as the king of Salem. And there is a view that, that referred that Salem was, a, was an old name for Jerusalem. But the passage, Genesis 14, 7 to 24, also describes Melchizedek as the priest of God Most High. So here you have a man in the Old Testament called Melchizedek. 
king of righteousness. This man is king of Salem, and he is the priest of God's most high. Melchizedek in his person combined two offices. He was king and he was priest. Now, I know, and we're not going to take this up because we're going to meet Melchizedek later on in Hebrews. I know that there are many theories as to who Melchizedek really was. Was he a Christophany? That is, was he an early prefigurement of Jesus Christ? Was he a theophany? Was he God himself who came earlier in the Old Testament to live on earth? I find the argument for Christophany or and theophany both unpersuasive. It would be incredibly difficult to understand how God himself would come and rule over a pagan city and live on earth, ruling over a pagan city. Well, the writer of Hebrews says of Melchizedek that this man had no beginning of days, no end of life. So that the, the biblical record does not tell you where Melchizedek came from. He had no genealogy. He did not have a parents. At least the biblical record did not tell us who his parents were. We do not know when he was born, nor do we know when he died. But the reason the record is silent on his genealogy and his birth and his death, it is not because the Bible wants to tell us that he was not a real human being, but he was there placed in Scripture as a type of the eternal Christ. And that is why there is no record of his genealogy or his birth or death. The writer of Hebrews says Christ is qualified as high priest because God has appointed him to be a priest. And he belongs to the line of high priests. He has a high priesthood that is eternal. That is our text says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord Jesus Christ is an eternal priest. Melchizedek was a prefigurement, was indeed a type of Christ. And so the writer will want us to understand that Jesus Christ is God's appointed priest. He's qualified because God has appointed him, but appointed him as king and appointed him as a king priest whose priesthood is eternal. And this is a, it's important because one of the great defects with the Aaronic priests, with human priests, was that they served for a number of years, but because of age and sickness, because of their own mortality, they died. And there was always a succession of priests. You always had to have somebody lined up in the future who's going to come to take over because you know at some point in time the high priest would die. But Jesus is appointed according to the order of Melchizedek pointing out that his priesthood has no end. He's an eternal priest. And it means that he will forever and ever remain available to represent his people. Well, that's the first argument. Jesus is qualified as high priest because of his divine appointment to office. Well, the second argument, which now reflects on what was said in verses 2 to 3, is that Jesus is qualified as high priest because of his sympathetic identification with his people. He's qualified because of his divine appointment to the office, but now he's qualified because of his sympathetic identification with his people. Verses 7 to 8 talks about our Lord's identification with us, his solidarity with us. It says, who in the days of his flesh. That's important. 
who in the days of his flesh. You see, just as he said in verse 1, every high priest taken from among men is referring to the humanity of the high priest. Now in verse 7, when he says, who in the days of his flesh, he's referring to the humanity of Jesus. Jesus identifies with his people because he himself took flesh and blood. He became a real human being. Now he says that in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement, with strong, loud, passionate cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that is God, and he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, he says, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. How does Jesus identify with his people? How is he a qualified high priest? Because he identifies with us. Well, he's qualified as our high priest because he identified with us not in our sinfulness, not in our sins, but in our sufferings. And that's what the, real, the whole uh, two statements here are about. Christ identified with his people not in sin, but in suffering. And so he says, not only is our Lord who was made in every respect in the days of his flesh. This one who identifies with us is one who is acquainted with suffering and grief. Because in the days of his flesh, in his earthly life, he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries. And the term offered up here is a term that is used a specific term used for offering of sacrifices. His prayers were sacrifices to God, sacrificial offerings to God. But when was Christ weeping and supplicating God with strong cries and tears? Well, it says in the days of his flesh. And so it points out that the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry, throughout his earthly existence, was a man of sorrow who was acquainted with grief. We need not believe that Christ only suffered at the cross. He suffered throughout his entire ministry. He was bombarded with critics and enemies around. The devil was always dogging him. He knew suffering. He lived amongst sinners. His soul was grieved within him. But we see particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the cross loomed before him, that Jesus offered up passionate cries to God to deliver him. He saw the wrath of God. He saw the abandonment of his father, and he shook. And he cried out, you remember how the gospel writers put it. Oh, Father, oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup Pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was offering up strong crying and tears and petitions unto God who was able to save him from death. And the text says that this suffering Christ, the one who wept and cried with passion to his father in the garden, that he was heard because of his godly fear. The term for fear that is used in our passage is a rare term used only twice in the New Testament, used here and used in Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom 
which cannot, which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptable with reverence and godly fear. He says our Lord was heard because he reverenced God, because he had an awe for God. Now the question was, he cried in the garden, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. How then was he heard? Well, certainly our Lord was not heard in the sense that God rescued him from physical death, for our Lord passed through death. But he was heard in that God delivered him from the power of death, so that he was raised on the third day, and he was exalted into heaven. Now the writer draws out the significance of our Lord's crying, of his suffering. He says in verse 8, Though he was a son, though he is the eternal Son of God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He's able to identify with us because of his sufferings. And he says he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Now this is, of course, a difficult expression, Christ's learning obedience. Let me tell you what we must not conclude from that. We must not take that to mean that he was at some point disobedient, and therefore suffering made him obedient. If you do that, then you will deny a major doctrine, the doctrine of the impeccability or the perfection or the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And the writer himself has already told us that Christ was without sin. So when he says he learned obedience, he's not saying that Christ, by suffering, became obedient because he was at some point disobedient. Learning obedience through the things that he suffered means that Jesus' suffering provided the means by which he could experience and express obedience. That is, it is precisely in the sufferings of his life and precisely in the sufferings of the Garden of, Eden, of, of, of Gethsemane when he was given then the choice either to please God or to displease him, either to fulfill the will of God or to fulfill his own will, that our Lord Jesus Christ chose God's will even though it led to suffering. It is therefore, suffering was the means by which Jesus experienced and expressed obedience to God the Father. And this suffering that our Lord Jesus Christ endured, through which he expressed, demonstrated obedience to the Father, is important for three reasons. First, he had to endure and express obedience in suffering if he were to be our sacrificial lamb. If he were to die for our sins, he had to be obedient in suffering. For if he were disobedient, we would never have been saved. He would not have offered a sacrifice for us. Secondly, he had to express obedience in the midst of suffering, through suffering, so that he might be able to sympathize with his brothers, to sympathize with us when we face suffering. In other words, he had to learn obedience in suffering. He had to go through suffering and be obedient to God's will that he might be able to understand us as we suffer in the process of doing the will of God. But thirdly, he had to learn or express or experience obedience in suffering so that not only might he be a sympathetic high priest, 
but that he might be able to sympathetically administer grace to us. So, so he had to go through suffering and be obedient in suffering, not only to understand us in our sufferings, but to be able to apply the benefits of his death to us and do so with sympathy. Jesus is qualified to be our high priest because he's appointed by God and because of his identification with us in our sufferings. But the writer takes another step, a step beyond the argument that we have been pursuing. And he will show us that Christ is qualified and more qualified than any Aaronic high priest, not only because he's been appointed by God, not only because he identifies with us in our sufferings, but because of his achievement of eternal salvation. So we find in, then in the next verse, in verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's going to tell us now that Christ is qualified to be our high priest because of his accomplishment of eternal salvation. Now let's just take the expression at the top of verse 9 and having been perfected. Again, as I have argued in the same sense that our Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience does not refer to a moral improvement in Christ. So being perfected does not refer to any moral improvement in the nature of Jesus Christ. What is meant here when he says that Christ having learned obedience, having gone through suffering and, and demonstrated obedience, has now been perfected, he, he, he uses the term perfected in the sense of qualified. Christ has been perfected through suffering in the sense that he has been qualified in the capacity as Savior. It is only as he obeyed the will of God the Father and endured the hardship of life and the agony of the cross, that he proved himself morally suitable and morally qualified to be Savior. So, having been perfected, having been qualified in the capacity as Savior because of his suffering, he says, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ, then, here is the credential of Christ that no Old Testament priest could ever match. The Aaronic priest offered sacrifices, and they were in some sense effective. A man who had sinned unknowingly brings his lamb to the priest. He was the one who cut the throat of the lamb. The priest sprinkled the blood, and that man had a temporary reprieve from God's wrath. But that, that act of the priest, of applying the blood, applying the sacrifice, did not definitively take away the man's sin, nor did it cleanse him internally. There was always a waiting, a hoping for one definitive sacrifice. And Christ, when he came and he went through suffering, he obeyed the will of God, he took the cross, he took our sins. He achieved by his sacrifice, the giving of himself, what the writer says is eternal salvation. 
and having been perfected, having been qualified in the office of Savior, because of his sufferings, he became the author of eternal salvation. This, of course, is similar to what he says in chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. He said that Christ is the captain, the pioneer of our salvation in chapter 2, verse 10. Now here in chapter 5 and verse 9, he calls the Lord Jesus Christ the author of eternal salvation. Why is the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished eternal? Well, let me give you three reasons. First, the salvation that Christ accomplished is eternal because he achieved eternal redemption. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9, 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ is qualified to be our great high priest to represent us in heaven because he has accomplished eternal salvation. It means that he has accomplished eternal redemption. That when he went to the cross, that he paid fully with his blood for all our sins, and he redeemed us, he delivered us, he rescued us, and rescued us from eternal judgment. So the writer says in Hebrews 6, that they are to go on beyond the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Christ achieved eternal salvation because he achieved an eternal deliverance or redemption. He bought us back permanently and eternally from judgment, from condemnation, from wrath. This salvation that Christ accomplished as our high priest is eternal because it inaugurated an eternal covenant. It's an eternal salvation because it inaugurated an eternal covenant. Let's turn again to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13 and 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. But he calls Christ's work, that his blood brought about an everlasting covenant. So Christ is qualified because he has in fact accomplished eternal salvation, an eternal salvation which includes the everlasting eternal covenant that God has because of Christ's death entered into a relationship with us in which God has solemnly pledged that we will be his children, that he will give to us the indwelling Holy Spirit and that he will forgive our sins and remember them no more. And that is an eternal guarantee. So you see, we have an eternal salvation. But all oh, the, the work of Jesus Christ is greater than any other priest. He's qualified to be a high priest because he accomplished this great salvation, this eternal salvation. It is eternal because this salvation secures an eternal inheritance. And so in Hebrews 9.15, the writer says, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
You and I have an eternal salvation through Christ, our great high priest. Because he has brought us, secured for us, an eternal inheritance that is heaven. Eternal life in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal joy in God's presence. Notice that he says in verse 9 that Christ, this qualified high priest, has accomplished eternal salvation, but for those, for all, he says, who obey him. And he caps this off by reminding us that the one who has done this is himself the great high priest who has been called according to the order of Melchizedek. We have been discussing Christ and his qualifications. We have reasoned that he is qualified to be our high priest because of his divine appointment to the office. That he's qualified because of his sympathetic identification with us. He, he is human and he has joined us in our sufferings so he's able to help us. But that he is our qualified high priest because he has accomplished eternal salvation. But you need to know that this expose on the qualifications of Jesus is not presented to us merely for academic purposes, but that we may engage with this idea of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And the question then is, what will we do with Christ as our great high priest? I want to suggest that, first of all, you and I must receive Jesus, the effective high priest who saves. He has done the greatest act of any high priest. It doesn't matter what a high priest might do. He might pray for his people. He might bless his people. But the foremost task of the high priest was to offer up sacrifices to God, was to offer an atoning sacrifice to remove their sins. And Jesus Christ has come into the world as our high priest and has done exactly what needed to be done. He has offered up an atoning sacrifice. But he did not give to God the blood of goats and calves. He brought his own blood. He gave his own life for our sins. And with it, he accomplished an everlasting covenant where God, because of Christ's death on the cross, agrees to forgive our sins and to make us his own. He has given to us an eternal inheritance in heaven itself. You see, this is the priest. This is the high priest that we must receive. We must go to him and receive from him salvation. We must come to his mercy seat. We must, by faith, take the salvation that he gives. I want you to recognize that the Old Testament priests did not represent every person in the whole world. The Old Testament priests only represented the people of Israel, the people that God had given to him. And Jesus Christ is a, a high priest for a specific people. And you can only know if you are one of those for whom he has given himself a sacrifice when you come by faith. You must come to Christ. You must embrace the whole Christ. You must know him and receive him as the eternal son of God, as fully and perfectly human being, without sin. 
You must know him as the Savior who died for sins. And you must take the whole Christ. You must rest upon the whole Christ. You must rest upon his death. And you must believe in the risen Christ because only by taking the crucified and risen Christ can you be saved. You need this high priest who alone brings salvation. And when you have trusted in him, when you have abandoned your filthy righteousness, when you have given up your fig leave righteousness for the righteousness that this priest gives, you will be saved. And then you must live your life by putting on the helmet of salvation living in the assurance that Christ's righteousness is sufficient. Your first response to this great high priest is to receive him because he alone saves. But you must also take comfort throughout your life in this sympathetic high priest. T.S. Eliot, in the play, The Cocktail Party, tells of Celia who was having an affair with a married man. And she goes to the psychologist, a psychologist where she confesses to him. And she says to him that she senses that there's something wrong with her. And she struggles for a while to put her finger on what is wrong with her. And then she says, this may sound ridiculous. But the only words that I have to describe what I feel is a sense of sin. The psychologist says to her, go in peace and work out your salvation with diligence. Ever since the works of men like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung in the early 1900s, we have had a, a rapid, an explosion in self-appointed priests and therapists, many of whom seek to remove the weight and the burden of our sins, who try to lighten our consciences. And one writer calls it by talking cure. Talking cure. Us guineas. But you and I can never know true freedom from guilt and from shame. We can never know true assurance by the suppression of guilt. The only way we can know true freedom and assurance is not by suppression of guilt, but by the application of grace. And the only place where we can find grace to deal with our sins is in Jesus, this great high priest. God has appointed him to be our high priest. He did not choose this office for himself. He was not put there by us. He was put there by God himself. And because he is a son, and because he is the king of glory, because he is the pure and the perfect one, his intercession God will never deny. It is he who stands on our behalf. And he is the one who pleads on the virtue of his blood. He has still the scars in his hands and the nail prints. 
He's there representing us. And so we, even though we still struggle with sin, even though we have not yet arrived, we have the temerity to be confident because we have an appointed high priest, one whom God has chosen to be our representative. And therefore, when we come to him, we know that he will be heard for us because he paid with his blood. We must go to Jesus, knowing that he intercedes, that even though we are weak and we are sinful, we have the perfect man, we have the right person, the one of whom God approves, who has been appointed for us. And when the devil tells you that you are a sinner and you do not deserve to go to heaven, you must tell him, yes, that is true. And when he tells you that you will be lost, you must tell him, no, that is a lie, because I have a high priest whom God has chosen for me, one who understands me, one who knows my weaknesses and my struggles, and one who pleads in the virtue of his death and resurrection, one whose blood stands forever as a sign of sins forgiven. You must therefore, my friends, draw consolation that the right man is in the right place at the right time for you, Jesus Christ. But there's something else that you must do regarding this high priest. Not only are you called to respond to him by going to him for salvation and receiving salvation from him, not only are you called to find assurance in his intercession for you in heaven, you're called upon to obey him. The writer tells us in chapter 5 of Hebrews verse 9 that Christ having been perfected, qualified in the office as Savior, has become the author of eternal salvation. But is the author of eternal salvation only to those who obey him. You see, you can never know true salvation without obedience. You see, you are called upon to obey Christ, your high priest, because he's your king who also rules over you. And that generation in the first century to whom the writer of Hebrew addresses this letter had made the error of disobeying God, or rather, not following Christ in the way they should. They were not being obedient to Christ. And he says, I want you to look at the Old Testament people of God. They did not obey God, and they did not enter into rest. And so he said to the first century generation, do not follow the disobedience of the Old Testament generation. He now speaks to us. And he says, don't follow the disobedience of the Old Testament generation or of the first century generation. No, we are to be obedient to Christ like Abraham, who by faith, when he was called to go into a land that he did not know where he was going, nevertheless he went out. And you and I are to render to God by the grace of God. We are to render to Christ who died for us, who represents us true and glad obedience. If he tells us that we are to turn from our sins, to break off those little foxes that spoil the grapes. If he tells us to put aside anger and malice and bitterness, if he calls us to give up the pursuit of wealth and to put God first in our lives, if he tells you to use your resources, your material and physical resources in the service of God, whatever he calls you, you are to do, you are to obey him. You see, Jesus gave us an example of obedience to his Father. 
He stood before the cross knowing the shame and the horror, and yet he obeyed. And that example of Jesus who obeyed even in sorrow bids us be obedient to him even though it may cost us. You must declare, you must say, it does not matter what it costs me, but I will obey the voice of my Savior. Why? Because he has loved me and given himself for me. Because he stands in heaven on my account. You see, the response to our high priest is to become more and more obedient. May the Lord God himself integrate the disparate parts of our lives that we be given one united heart that beats with gratitude for Christ and submits itself to the dictates of Jesus Christ. What must we do to Christ, our high priest? We must bow. We must receive his salvation. We must look to his intercession. But we must put ourselves under his command and be obedient to him. May God do so in us only by the power of his grace. For Jesus' name, amen.